Hey everybody, welcome to the Good Line Podcast. This is Aaron Salvato and I'm here today with Benjamin Morrison. How's it going, man? Going all right. Good to be with you. It's good to have you. It's your first time on the show, hopefully not your last. And today we're going to be talking all about racism. Super fun conversation, right? Yeah, just, you know, a light, uh, easy listening topic. Yes, exactly. So, you got on my radar from calvarychapel.com. I'm a part of the team at CGN that runs the website and edits it. And I saw your article go up and I was just struck by it. And so I thought we'd bring you on and ask you some questions and do a deep dive into the heart of that article. But before we get into it, can you maybe give our guests just an idea of who you are and what you do? Yeah. So my name is Benjamin. I pastor a Calvary Chapel in Ukraine that my wife and I planted 15 years ago now. I grew up in the U.S., but moved to Ukraine at the age of 20, fresh out of Bible college, Mm -hmm. and have been here since. So, yeah, besides being the lead pastor of Calvary Chapel in Svitlovotsk, is how you say the name of the city where we are. I'm not going to even try to pronounce that. I, there is a trick for how you say it. Do you want to know the okay. trick? Okay, yeah. What, what's what's the trick? So the trick that the trick that I tell everyone, you know, little like sweet and low little pink packets that give you cancer if you eat too many of them. Yeah, yeah. So just think sweet, sweet and low. Only take the n out. So it's sweet low. Sweet low. Say sweet low. Oh, yeah, that's easy. Sweet low. And then Volks like a Volkswagen. So it's sweet low Volks. Sweet low Volks. Oh yeah. Oh, there you go. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's uh, it. That's You've a nailed great it. Trick. <laughs> yeah, so so that's where that's where we are. That's where our church is. And then also I am the director of City to City Ukraine. Hmm. So so City to City is a ministry that was actually started by Tim Keller in New York City and now it has kind of affiliates all over the globe. So I'm I'm the director for City to City in Ukraine. So Basically, we're trying to see movements of the gospel in the key cities of Ukraine, primarily through through training of church planters. So that's been going since 2016. And then I am also currently serving as the training coordinator for City to City Europe. Hmm. So kind of on a Europe level. I have a wonderful wife, Lena. She is Ukrainian. So my better half is Ukrainian. <laughs> and then we have two kids, Abigail and Isaac. Abby actually turns 14 tomorrow. Oh, so. congrats. Happy birthday, Abby. Shout out to Abby. <laughs> and then our son, Isaac, is 11. Awesome. Awesome. Well, Thanks for your background. Now we all know you a little bit better. And before we jump into the questions, I'd love for you to just break down for us the article that you wrote. Uh, what was the title of that article? So it was actually two articles. It was kind right. of a, a two-part short series. The first one is titled Pelagian Racism. Mm. And, and kind of the title needs to be explained a little bit. The question is, again, the topic, as you've already mentioned, is systemic racism. So it kind of starts out discussing, you know, this idea that, that there's kind of a lot of pushback, you know, particularly among certain groups of Christians that, you know, as soon as you say systemic racism, it's like, well, you know, either I don't believe in that or, you know, I'm, I'm not part of that because, you know, I don't hate, you know, black people or people of other ethnicities or, you know, it's it's cultural Marxism or whatever. And kind of the, the the goal of the first article, let's put it that way, is to really draw out that, you know, although, you know, these are these are valid concerns and questions, that really this concept of systemic racism is born from a biblical understanding of the doctrine of sin. And so we should take it seriously. The, the title, Pelagian Racism, so there was this guy back in church history, Pelagius, in the 5th century AD, 
basically he denied, you know, original sin. He denied that humans were born fallen. He thought that Adam, you know, was kind of sinful only for himself and only affected the rest of us as sort of a bad example. But basically everybody had a completely fresh slate to start from. Obviously, he was, you know, eventually condemned as a heretic because this is not what the Bible says. You know, the problem is that a lot of times, and, and here's the analogy, that people kind of have a Pelagian view of racism where they'll say, you know, well, if I individually, personally, consciously, you know, don't hate people of other ethnicities, therefore, you know, there's no racism. Hmm. You know, so the reality is the Bible says that sin is, you know, it's it's part of nature. It's part of the world system. So, so the Bible actually talks about sin in a, in a systemic way, not only in a personal and individual way. You know, and I mean, we, we can see that in a number of examples in the article. I use the example of uh, greed, you know. So just because you're not out robbing banks doesn't mean that you don't have, you know, issues of greed in your heart. We live in a culture that, that in various ways promotes greed. And so to kind of answer the question, well, you know, are you greedy as a yes or no question is way oversimplified. Like probably a better question would be, you know, where do you struggle with greed? Mm. How much greed is in your heart? Mm. And, and truth be told, it's really the same with racism. It's not like yes or no, you know, kind of kind of the same way you could do with pride or lust or sort of these other heart level sins. You know, so so the better question is, you know, where where are the ways that kind of, you know, racism and, and again, living in a culture that, you know, in various ways has promoted and even continues to promote a certain racist views, you know, approaches to things, you know, where is that affecting us? So so that's sort of the better question. Then that, so that's the first article really is to kind of lay that out as the issue. So the second article, the subtitle is Will Preaching the Gospel Fix Systemic Racism? Hmm. And so in that, you know, kind of moving along that, let's say somebody agrees with the fact that, okay, you know, there's, there is racism, maybe even on a systemic level in different places in society. But, you know, as Christians, like we should just preach the gospel and not worry about any of that. Right. So, you know, kind of I go into, you know, where that's right and where it's maybe not quite right. So obviously, first of all, you know, only the gospel can change hearts. And that, that needs to be emphasized that that's where it's really right, is that you cannot change hearts through, you know, policy. You cannot change hearts through, you know, kind of revamping these different structures like the gospel has to do that work. And really, you know, racism in the end is a form of self-justification, right? It's trying to sort of prove your worth by, you know, demeaning the worth of other ethnicities. And so, you know, the gospel says that that while we actually kind of disproved our worth through our own sin, um, but Christ in his grace has given us his worth, you know, and so so that actually is what deals with that. Nevertheless, then I go on to kind of say that, you know, the gospel, if we if we truncate it to think of it only as sort of individualized forgiveness, that's a that's an important part of the gospel, but it's not the whole gospel. Yeah, there's a collective element. There's a collective element. You know, ultimately Christ is coming again, you know, to 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 establish a universal kingdom, right? That mm. that is, you know, the transforming of not only individuals but the entire system. Mm. And while while only Christ does that fully and completely, you know, as his church are called to reflect that, to be a sign of that, to be salt and light, as Jesus said, in the world. So, you know, it's, it's kind of, there's an issue where when we say, well, just preach the gospel and kind of ignore these questions of, of you know, systemic racism, or systemic racism, you know, we're, we're kind of acknowledging that individuals affect culture, but we're forgetting that culture affects individuals. Mm -hmm. It shapes yeah. us. 
And so if we actually do care about individuals, we also should care about culture. We also should care about, let's say, systemic level issues. Right? Yes. Yeah. You know, and, and I, I kind of go into, you know, some some wrong approaches to that. And also there's kind of this issue of consistency, I have to say. This is particularly within the U.S., <laughs> but, you know, a lot of the people, not everyone, but a lot of the people who would kind of be against really the concept of systemic racism, or even if they're ready to acknowledge it, you know, kind of say, well, let's just sort of ignore it and, and preach the gospel. When you bring up something like abortion, <laughs> their tone changes, yeah. right? It's like, well, here's, yes. here's another injustice. But, you know, we're not content to just, ah, well, let's just ignore it and sort of preach the gospel, hope it goes away. And that's really the point is that it's not an either or thing. It's not either preach the gospel or address issues of systemic injustice. Mm. Rather, the gospel actually is what enables us and calls us to speak into these issues, you know, not only just think individually, but, but for our culture, for our nation, for our world. Yeah, mm. so I mean, kind of as a summary, that's, that's the two articles. sounds like to me, just listening to what you're saying and having read the articles, it sounds like you're trying to approach this topic, not from like a political lens, but from a pastoral and theological lens. What I'm getting is you're not saying, you know, my job here is to convince you that what the political left says about systemic racism is 100% accurate or what the political right says about systemic racism is 100% accurate. You're trying to say, hey, this is something our culture is talking about. And a lot of us are tempted to throw the baby out with the bathwater and just say, yeah, this doesn't really exist. It's not really a problem because maybe we're reacting to what the political media scape is saying about it. And you're trying to say, well, no, hold on. There is actually a biblical way we can look at this and there is a theological framework for this. And I mean, would you say that's kind of an accurate assessment of what you're trying to do? Yeah, that's totally fair, because I think as Christians, you know, we need to have our thinking formed not by, you know, pundits on the left or pundits on the right, but, you know, by scripture. The gospel comes into any culture and challenges it at different points, as well as because of God's common grace, it also agrees with it at certain points. Yeah. To, so to say, you know, this group is 100% wrong, this group is 100% right, like that just never happens. The only person who was 100% right was Jesus. Right. And I would even, I mean, I don't even honestly like the labels left and right. It's overly simplified from even a political science point of view. Right. And you're from the Ukraine. So obviously you're thinking from a different perspective. But for us right now, especially during an election year, the people in the United States listening to the show, the framework that a lot of us feel forced to operate from is that left or right paradigm for better or for worse. My encouragement would be to, to expand that, you know, but oh, that's I, not I necessarily the, the direct topic of our, of our conversation. Yeah, that's a whole nother episode. You know, this is great, honestly, because... You know, I want Christians to start listening to pastors more than they do pundits. You know, I was listening to Ed Stetzer talk about this and he was saying he was talking to a pastor who was just upset because he was like, you know, I don't understand why I get up and preach on a Sunday and I'm trying to teach people how to live. I'm trying to teach them the way of Jesus. And then my people turn around and they live the way that Fox News tells them to live or the way that CNN tells them to live. And 
Ed responded and he was like, well, yeah, think about it. I mean, we get them for one hour a week, maybe two if they go to a midweek service. But the news, the news is on 24-7. The radio is on 24-7. So, of course, that's what shapes their worldview. Part of the mission of the show, one of the things we're trying to do is just help people to think through things, you know, hard things, hard questions from a theological frame point. And so, you know, with that, maybe let's jump into some of these questions. How does that sound? Yeah. Great. One thing I want to talk to you about is the idea of systemic racism. That's a loaded term. Uh, it's a term that's caused a lot of drama in the Christian world. So for you, when you say systemic racism, what exactly do you mean? That is an excellent question. And I think, you know, definitions are a good place to start. I mean, at its, at its basic, most basic level, you know, it's racism that, you know, is contrasted to, let's say, on an individual level where, you know, you have an individual who's, you know, having, having racist, let's say, inclinations, you know, where it's kind of baked into the system. In a sense, you could almost say baked into the culture, so, I mean, it, it does include legislation, but it's not only legislation. You know, and even in, in one of the articles, I used the example of kind of, you know, dealing in the book of Esther, right? Haman wants to, wants to destroy the Jewish people and they get rid of Haman, right? Haman gets hung. They get rid of the racist, right? So problem solved? Well, no, it's not because, you know, through, in, in his case, through legislation, it got baked into the system. And so they actually, after Haman was out of the picture, they still had to deal with, let's say, the remnants, you know, the, the results of what he had put into motion. And really, that's kind of a, a great illustration for, you know, systemic racism. Like I said, though, it's not only legislative, you know, it, it can kind of come through in secondary policies and whatnot as well. So that would that would be sort of a short answer to that question. OK, OK. So, yeah, knowing that term causes a lot of drama. If I could just in a minute kind of encapsulate in a nutshell that drama, I was talking to a friend who's a pastor and he was expressing to me that there's this kind of distinct disconnect between generations when it comes to the term. And what I mean by that is the understanding of what systemic racism means. So this pastor friend of mine, he's a millennial. He's like an older millennial. And so he was saying that the younger generation, when they're talking about the word systemic, what they mean, and he was having this conversation with his dad, who's also in ministry, they were talking about their differences and view on this. So he was saying the younger generation, they view systemic, the word systemic as saying, okay, there's corruption in the systems. There are places in the systems concerning, for instance, law enforcement, legislation, areas in culture where things break down. And because of the racism of the past, like slavery and Jim Crow, that stuff hasn't just gone away overnight. And so there's still places in the system that are problematic and there's issues and it's causing some racist outcomes. And so we should acknowledge it and we should address it and work to stop it where we see it. And then his dad, who's a pastor, responded and said, OK, well, son, for us boomers, when you say systemic racism, what we hear 
is it sounds like when you say systemic, it sounds like you're saying the entire government is 100 percent racist and all of the police forces are racist and all of the judges are racist and the entire system is racist, like like the whole system. And and it's like you're saying son, even the Constitution itself is racist. And so when you say systemic racism, it sounds like you're accusing a country that I love very much of being racist. And so. I just thought, man, what a great snapshot of where we're at. We have this term, but there's not an agreement on what that term means. So how can people of different generations and ways of thinking bridge that gap when it comes to this term? I think first and foremost, the way that you just stated, right? I mean, they sat down, they had a conversation, each of them kind of, you know, rather than just tossing out terms, which are, you know, sometimes somewhat volatile you know, kind of buzzwords and whatnot. They actually took the time to define what they mean to listen to one another, which is, I mean, that's incredible. That's a great example, I think. You know, so so being careful to nuance, you know, to even ask a question, you know, when I taught like, you know, let's say this, this millennial friend of yours, you know, when I say, systemic racism, what do you hear, right? What, what, what do you, how do you understand what I'm talking about? Right. And just take time to actually learn to listen to one another. You know, and unfortunately, I think that's something that we've really, in many ways, lost the art of doing, you know, social media hasn't really helped that. We, we've, we've learned to kind of, you know, comment and tweet at each other rather than listen to each other. You know, and unfortunately, I think you, you do see a lot of these kinds of, you know, things that ought to be conversations being had in the, you know, in the public eye on social media, which usually does not lead to a lot of empathy and mutual understanding. It's, it's unfortunately often about just kind of scoring points and, you know, you know, kind of a, a gotcha thing here or there. Right. So, yeah, I mean, I think, I think starting with definitions is, is really key. Mm, yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. And, and when it comes to definitions, then when you have two opposing definitions for us in ministry, what is a good deciding factor for which definition we say, okay, this one is more accurate than the other? That's a good question. I mean, obviously it depends what you're talking about. If it's, it's biblical terms, then, you know, you have to, you have kind of some more authority with it. Right. I think the important thing, especially with sort of these, you know, kind of very potentially volatile terms, you know, of cultural Marxism or systemic racism or whatever, whatever, you, you know, these kind of loaded terms that people are using right. to, again, to define it because you realize that that people who are maybe ideologically on the other side of the aisle, so to speak, are 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 creating their definitions by listening to, you know, in many cases, kind of pundits to people who are really demonizing the other side in many ways. I think that, you know, you need to really, again, kind of lay out just just the basic definition. So again, systemic racism, right? I mean, you can't get more basic than it's racism in a system. Yeah. I mean, that's that's kind of right there, you know. Now, you use this example of, you know, this older pastor who said, you know, well, I, I hear that and I think that you're saying that, you know, everything in the system, you know, is, is just completely worthless and, and you know, 100% of all the people and, and the Constitution itself are racist. You know, that is something that does not, I mean, it's not implied in the term itself. It may be something that, you know, this man's grasped onto from somebody else. And maybe some people do define it that way. But again, I mean, because there's no, you know, 
let's say, dictionary definition of what these things mean. I think it just means that we have to have a conversation about what what I am saying, what I'm not saying is just as important that we're clear about what we're not saying, lest people needlessly take offense, you know, at the things that we're talking about. Okay, that that's good. G- give me a second. I just want to pull up a quote from the legendary Chuck Smith. Just give me a quick second. <laughs> it wouldn't be a Calvary Chapel podcast without a Chuck Smith quote, no, would it? I'm- I know, I know, right? There you go. Yeah, for the, for those of you guys listening who are not Calvary Chapel people, and we love you. We love our non-Calvary Chapel audience. Chuck Smith was the founder of Calvary Chapel way back in the 60s. So anyway, yeah, you'll, you'll, Ben, you'll, you'll find this interesting. So, you know, CGN, Calvary Global Network, actually put out a statement on racism. And, you know, it's interesting because when you go through the statement, right, and you read it line by line, it's basically, it's simply an acknowledgement that one, racism has been a big part of our world's past, our country's past, which, you know, I think most people hopefully would know, given we fought a civil war about it. You would think so, yeah. Hopefully that would be a no-brainer. But it, so in, in that statement, we acknowledge that racism has sadly at times been a part of the big C church in the USA. And if you look through history, you'll see many Christians supported slavery and, and pastors even twisted scripture and preached from the pulpit that slavery was a defendable practice. And, you know, just a quick example of that in a modern context, Bob Jones University, a Christian university, they did not lift their ban on interracial dating until the year 2000 or 2001, which is like pretty modern. So for, you know, for a while we had this Christian college still holding on to a segregationist idea in the modern age. And that's just one example of how racism has still been present in the church, sadly. And so, you know, we put out that statement and basically, you know, we, like I said, the statement was just acknowledging that these things happened. And then really it was just saying that we as a church want to acknowledge these things. And then we want to work together to combat these things wherever we see them. And that starts first off with self-reflection And just us looking at our hearts and seeing, you know, is there any of this sin in us? And from there, moving on to repentance, which is pretty standard Christian stuff, you know, self-reflection and repentance. But, you know, people got mad. I I was I was really surprised the responses from people in the comment section on Instagram. We had one commenter saying, ah, you know, Chuck Smith would be rolling in his grave if he read this. And I couldn't believe that, you know, they, they were so offended and triggered that we called racism a sin and said that it still existed in parts of the church and that we need to continue to fight it. And so they asserted that Chuck Smith, our founder, would oppose this statement. And so, you know, I wanted to test that theory myself and see, you know, what would Chuck say about this? So I went on Blue Letter Bible where all of Chuck's sermons are transcribed and I just searched for the word prejudice to see what would come up. And This is the quote from Chuck. Here, I'll go ahead and I'll play the clip of Chuck himself. Here it is. There is no room for prejudice in the heart of the child of God. I am appalled that in some churches and in some church institutions, there still does exist prejudice, sometimes anti-Semitism, sometimes the almost fascist Anglo superiority attitude, the Aryan race. God help us, these cannot and do not reflect a true Christian or his experience. I mean, did you catch that? Like right there in that clip, Chuck himself says, and I'll do it in my Chuck voice, 
There is no room for prejudice in the heart of the child of God. Even the almost fascist Anglo-superiori attitude, the Aryan race. I mean, right there, he's, he's talking about white supremacy, which is just insane. And, and furthermore, he was addressing that racism still exists in some church institutions. He, he says it right there. I'm appalled that in some churches and in some church institutions, prejudice and racism still does exist. So, I mean, that was exactly what our racism statement at CGN was saying. We were just calling that reality out. So I left that quote from Chuck as a reply to their comment, their angry comment, and they just ignored it and didn't respond to it. So it's just one of those things to me where it's like, I don't understand why people think that once you start talking about racism and critiquing racism and calling out racism, all of a sudden you've become this cultural Marxist or this leftist. I mean, I just think, shouldn't it be a no brainer for us as Christians, even conservative Christians to just to acknowledge that these things are wrong and to commit to fighting against them. It should be, you know, I think, I, th I think again, it goes back to definitions, right? So, so, and kind of, this is where I started my first article is that, you know, people will, will say, you know, well, I, I don't personally, I mean, they would agree, you know, yeah. Like hating other races is wrong. Being prejudiced against other races is wrong. Well, I don't, I don't have any of that. I don't hate, you know, blacks or Latinos or whatever, right. you know, so therefore this doesn't apply to me. Basically saying that racism exists only on an individual level. Yeah, that's where a lot of people want to take it. And, and that was what many people were saying in the comments on that article. It was basically, why are you calling us as a church to examine our hearts for racism? We're not racists. And, and people were saying, are you saying Costa Mesa, Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa is racist? Like, do you have a bunch of racists in your congregation? Because we don't. If you do, that's your problem. But as for me, you know, I don't need to examine my heart because I know for a fact that I'm not racist. And that's kind of the attitude that many people were having. Right, right. I just feel like maybe, I mean, is it possible that many Christians violently are opposed to even considering that there might be racism in their heart? Not because they're, they're reacting to racism themselves, but maybe the perception that the opposing political side is taking advantage of people. Does that, does that kind of make sense? Yeah, it makes sense. I think that that's, that's one possible reason why somebody might react, you know, rather aggressively to any talk of systemic racism. They sort of, it's, it's sort of a guilt by association thing. They sort of lump it in with, you know, what they see as uh, sort of an attack on Christianity or, you know, promoting things that are obviously, you know, and blatantly sinful from a biblical perspective. Right. But I mean, the reality is that, you know, we need to not kind of, we, first of all, that's, that's bad reasoning and it's, it's not Christian of us, you know, to kind of lump things in like that together. You know, the, the question needs to be looked at, at on its own, mm. right? So is, is the racism, is there systemic racism? Now, Again, kind of at the most basic level, systemic racism is racism in a system. You know, for to talk about the U.S., I mean, nobody, like you said, nobody would argue with the fact that there was a very racist system for a very long time, right, with, with slavery. Yeah. And then even after the abolition of slavery, you know, sort of the Jim Crow era, where, you know, maybe they weren't held as slaves, they were now counted as, you know, not three-fifths of a person, but, but you know, full people. And, then, and yet, nevertheless, they were not afforded the same rights and and privileges that, that white people had in this country. The question is, you know, can can a country, and again, I'm applying specifically to the U.S. right now, but, you know, can a country 
live, you know, 300 years creating a culture, creating a system, if you will, that, that oppresses and denigrates a particular race of people, and then expect that, you know, within the short span of, you know, let's say 1968, right, at least officially kind of civil mm-hmm. rights were, were all put in place. But again, didn't always happen that quickly and in some ways still hasn't. But nevertheless, let's say that, you know, 1968, you know, within the span of 50 years that, that the previous 300 years are just wiped out and don't have any effect. I mean, that just seems like unrealistic. Yeah. Right. Sort of this idea that everything was solved after the civil rights movement. And now we don't need to have a discussion about it anymore. That's the attitude I've seen from many people, especially on Facebook and comment sections and discussions about this topic. So here's a question I think I'd want to pivot to. I think a lot of times, really, when we're talking about politics and people's political opinions and ideologies, regardless of theology, a lot of times what can motivate our political ideology is less theology and more things like safety and security and also like what's going to happen with my tax dollars, right? That can be a motivation for how we think politically. I think sometimes that can play into it when we're dealing with things like taxes and how our tax dollars are spent. Sometimes our heart can say, you know, why should I have my tax dollars go to help somebody else who might be disadvantaged? You know, how can I trust that the government's going to do the right thing? How can I trust that people aren't just going to take advantage of the system? I know that's kind of a complex political question. There's a lot of layers there. But I'm just asking, how can we think about these things theologically and not strictly politically? That is a good question to ask. And and at the end of the day, we have to think about it theologically, not even politically, I would say, but pragmatically, because, you know, if, if what decides the stands that we take, the things that we care about is, you know, at the end of the day, well, how much money do I get to keep? That's not a Christian motivation. Mm. No, I'm not saying that, you know, we need to necessarily raise tax rates or anything like that, but that should not be what determines what we care about and what we speak about and what we stand for. Mm. So theologically, I mean, again, you know, if you if you look in the Bible, just kind of at the topic of justice, the Bible has a lot to say about justice, has a lot to say about, you know, oppressing those who, who cannot defend themselves, you know, from from dishonest practices things that, you know, would, would impinge on the rights of, of other people. You know, these are things that, that the Bible speaks clearly about that God, through the prophets in the Old Testament, you know, convicted and even judged Israel for. Hmm. So for us to, you know, just kind of say, well, I don't want to think about any of that because, you know, well, I, my, my tax rate might go up. <laughs> I, would, I would first say, you know, probably we should pray about our priorities if that's our first concern. Right. You know, secondly, I mean, I don't I don't think that uh, necessarily I mean, I I wouldn't want to say that, you know, somebody who's concerned about justice for minorities for for, you know, African-Americans necessarily has to be in favor of reparations. You know, that's that's one possible step. Yeah, that's a debate with a lot of nuance to it. We're we're not going to solve that issue here on this podcast. (laughs) Most likely not. I would, I would, I guess I would say, you know, that we should, we should be careful to practice, you know, not a double standard. And, and the example that I'm thinking of immediately is the example of Germany, who are still paying reparations to the survivors of the Holocaust. Mm. Now, now, in my experience, kind of knowing, you know, many conservative Christians, the way that they, you know, kind of feel about Israel and, and, and the cause of, of, 
the Jews, you know, are either very much in favor of that or at least are not opposed to it, you know, but I guess the question is, well, you know, if that is the case and if you see that as even something being just, let's make sure that we don't practice a double standard just because it it's our money. Yeah, that's a really good point. And I mean, Jesus says, where your treasure is, your heart will be also. And I think quite often, like I said, the factors of safety and security and finances can be one of the main things that motivate us and how we think politically and much more than, than our theology motivates how we think politically. And so we're not going to solve this issue, but I did think it was worth bringing up because it is a hot topic that comes up in this debate. We've got these ideas about what is due, you know, what is due to people and what are the implications of what happens once we start to address the sin of racism. And I think one place my mind goes is that if we allow these hot button issues to define how we see people, so like for instance, if you're listening to this as a white conservative and when the topic of racism and black people comes up in your mind, if your mind just automatically goes to the issue of reparations, you know, the idea that white people are supposed to pay back black people for the sin of racism financially, if your brain just starts thinking, you know, oh, these people just want my money because of something I had nothing to do with that was people hundreds of years ago, you know, regardless of whether or not you think that's right or wrong, for you as a Christian, it's really going to hurt your ability as a Christian to minister to somebody who has experienced racism in their life. If the first way that you think of them is you define them by this issue that you're maybe opposed to. Now I'm talking about somebody who had tangibly something in their life, someone in their community come against them and treat them in a racist way. That person's going to be on your doorstep in front of you. Maybe God wants you to minister to them and comfort them and help them. But because your mind is so tangled up in these political issues, it's going to cause your heart to be bitter and hard towards them. And you're not going to be able to help them. So, uh, you know, I just think it's very hard for us to separate issues from people. And I think as Christians, we need to be able to set issues aside and just look at the people as individuals right in front of us and figure out what, how does God want me to minister to this person? And does that mean maybe I need a, another layer of understanding about this person's particular situation that maybe I don't have based on my own life experience? Does that does that make sense? Yeah, it definitely does. You know, and, and obviously kind of our going to this question of priorities, right? You know, if, if we're kind of obsessed about, well, does this person to pay a higher tax rate? I mean, you know, what is what is your heart actually caring about at that moment? You know, Jesus said the greatest commandments are to love God, right, with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourself, yeah. you know, whatever color he or she may be, you know, so how are you loving this person? I, I mean, I would say you, you said, you know, if if kind of there's this black person, are they immediately thinking, you know, oh, well, you know, kind of reparations? My guess is probably not. You know, I, I, I would want to, you know, assume the best, let's say, of people. But I think it's more about, you know, when we start talking about, you know, systemic racism, you know, whatever color you are. I mean, we're two white guys here talk, talking about systemic racism. Yes. It's really that conversation, I think, that that maybe spooks people a little bit. And again, like I said, because of this whole, you know, unfortunately unhealthy, you know, you know, getting getting saturated, you know, day in, day out by punditry, you know, rather than than just kind of biblical thinking, you know. Yeah, yeah pundits can shape our theology more than pastors these days, if that's who we're listening to. Right, right. Yeah. So, I mean, again, but but that's why that's why I'm careful to say that, you know, saying, yes, there is a systemic racism problem. Yes, as Christians, we need to care about it because God cares about it. Because, 
at the end of the day, you know, my, my black brother, my, my Latino sister, these are all people who are all created in the image of God, first of all. And second of all, you know, I mean, if we're talking within the, the realm of the church, you know, the people of God, it says in Revelation, are from every tribe, tongue, and nation. You know, so so we're we're one in Christ. We're spending eternity with these people together. And that needs to be more of our identity than what political party or what tax scheme we lean towards. Mm. Because these are these are things that are again eternal. Oh, that's so good. place I'd want to go from here is I'd love to ask you about the idea of national sin and collective sin, because that's something you bring up in your article. And it it's honestly, it's a concept that I didn't grow up hearing much about. And I just want to ask you, is that an idea that is a modern idea or is there a biblical precedent for national sin and people repenting at a national level? Like just as an example, you know, to put it in biblical terms, Let's take it out of like the, the modern political spectrum. Let's say there's a prophet in Israel and child sacrifice is going on at the time. You know, is it right for one of the prophets, you know, who himself has never sacrificed a child? He's never done that. He's always been repulsed by it. But is it right for him to repent on behalf of his nation and pray and say, God, on behalf of my nation, I'm sorry for this and it's horrible and I want to repent of it. Is that is that right? If it's not right, then we probably have a problem because there's examples of that in the Bible. Okay. You know, I mean, I mean, very often the prophets addressed the entire nation of Israel and not only Israel, other nations as a whole, you know, convicting them for this or that injustice. Mm -hmm. And so that's I mean, there's a very biblical precedent. You see what what is really a great example with the prophet Daniel. You know, he was he was as a young man taken to Babylon you know, part of the Babylonian captivity, which was a result of the sin of kind of, you know, his fathers and forefathers. Mm-hmm. And God eventually said, you know, enough is enough. And, and they're going to captivity in Babylon. And then in Daniel chapter nine, you see Daniel praying and he's repenting and he's confessing and he's asking mercy and forgiveness for the sins of the nation. And you could really argue that, I mean, Daniel didn't do any of that stuff. Daniel was like a kid, you know, at the time that they were taken to Babylon. You know, he's not he's not individually, again, guilty of anything. And yet at the same time, we see him actually interceding on behalf of the whole nation. So, yeah, I mean, if we're following the biblical example, that's a very biblical thing. In fact, I would say that this idea that sin is only individual is a more modern idea. It's really born out of the enlightenment that, you know, kind of I am, I am an indi- individual island unto myself. You know, I, I don't exist as part of, you know, a people or a collective whole, which in many ways the Western, you know, church post-enlightenment has kind of swallowed that narrative hook, line, and sinker. Well, that's an American idea as well. American, not only, you know, also, also British. I mean, a lot of mm. the enlightenment thinkers were British, obviously mm. America being a, originally a colony, British colony. But, uh, you know, yeah, it, it really is the more modern idea. And like I mentioned in the article, that was kind of, in some ways, Pelagius was ahead of his time, you know, thinking only in, in, only in individual terms that sin is only what I do. It's mm-hmm. not kind of part of a system. It's not what, what is around me and what affects me and what, you know, as the Bible says, what actually is sort of 
you know, the Bible uses this term the world, right? Quite a bit, mm. you know, in different places it uses different contexts, but when it's in a negative context, it's talking about the system, right? The system that is against God, that is, you know, not in submission to God. And the Bible basically talks about quote unquote, the world or the system, if you will, as a very real thing, you know, that in fact, as Christians, we need to be aware of, and we need to you know, not just kind of go along with the flow there. That's really good. I, I think one thing that comes to my mind is how many times in the Old Testament you read, and Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. And I'm, I'm sure that there could be somebody in Israel who would read that verse and say, well, I didn't do that evil thing. That that wasn't me. But it was enough people to the point where God was looking at this nation and judging a nation for its sin collectively. And it's interesting to me that when it comes to national sin, it seems like Christians, as Christians, quite often we can agree on some of those sins. And it's it's totally not a problem. Like, for instance, if we were going to have a national day of prayer and somebody, you know, let's just stick with kind of that traditional conservative Christian environment that we've both come from. If somebody got up in that kind of church, you know, not a progressive church, but a traditional conservative Christian church got up on the mic and said, Lord, we cry out because of our nation's great sin of abortion and how many lives it's devastated. And we repent and we ask for forgiveness on behalf of our nation. Please lead us on how we can oppose this great evil and fight against it in our own lives and hearts. I feel like I feel like most people would not bat an eye at that. I feel like most Christians would be nodding their head. I mean, I'd be nodding my head with them because I feel the same way about abortion. But, you know, on the flip side, if somebody got up and said the same thing about racism, like, Lord, we repent for our nation's great sin of racism and the ways it's still happening in our world and the lives it's destroyed and the lives that it's still destroying. And we repent of this sin and we ask you to help us and guide us and lead us on how to do better, Lord. I mean, I, I have friends who are pastors who've done that and people are actually leaving their churches because in their mind, saying that racism is something that's still a problem and saying that it's something that we might have some complicitness in, to many people, it's like, oh, you're just buying into the liberal agenda and now you're this social justice warrior and you've neglected to focus on the gospel. So, I mean, just, it blows my mind. Why, why do you think that is and what is the solution as the church to get beyond that mentality. Yeah, I mean, it, it kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier, which is sort of a double standard, right? Now, now to be fair, I mean, I think that with the case of abortion, it's like people see, well, abortions are still happening, you know, and, and, and mm. unfortunately, <laughs> tragically, they're happening, happening at, you know, a pretty high rate. Right. And it's not just the spread of abortion, but it's the acceptance. Right. And, and well. so people, you know, are, are maybe, maybe comfortable with, you know, saying, well, yes, this is a problem. And yes, Lord, you know, kind of forgive our, our nation for this. I think in some cases, at least if you're, if you're saying this with systemic racism, it really may just be a question of people just don't see it or they don't want to see it. You know, they, they think that, again, like you mentioned that it's, you know, sort of part of some narrative and then, and then it's kind of, you know, sort of all of these big scary terms <laughs> of, you know, cu cultural Marxism and, you know, social justice warriors and, well, you're just virtue signaling, which I have to say, I, I particularly hate that term yes, of virtue signaling because what it implies is it implies that you, you see the motive of someone's heart. Yes. It implies that they're, they're making a stand for something 
And basically by saying, oh, well, you're just virtue signaling, you're saying, well, you're not sincere about it. Yeah. By the, but without any grounds to make that accusation, the Bible calls that slander and slander is a sin. So, mm-hmm. you know, think twice next time before you say somebody's virtue signaling. But, you know, I mean, people get offended maybe for two reasons. Again, like I said, maybe they just kind of do this guilt by association and they figure, well, if you're talking about racism, it must mean that you're sort of, you know, buying the entire package of everything that, you know, sort of they've heard pundits talk day in and day out about, you know, is is going to destroy American society rather than being able to examine an issue individually Hmm. to examine its merits. The other reason potentially why people get really upset about that is because they're afraid Mm. that maybe they they're actually maybe there actually is something in their heart and either there's too much shame or maybe too much guilt that that they just don't want to deal with that. And so instead, they just don't listen to it. Yeah, it's fascinating to me to see the reactions that people have to talking about racism. And part of me thinks that to many people who consider themselves patriotic or maybe even nationalistic in a way, in their mind, they would think they would have this idea of America, you know, America beat racism. Like we overcame it. We, we had it. It was a part of life, but then we fought a war and good men died and fought and bled to free the slaves. And, and then we had the civil rights movement and, and good people rose up and fought against this and overcame it. So it's kind of this idea of almost like this sense of pride. We overcame racism. We beat it. Yeah. I mean, I think that's, that's fair. Americans love to win things, <laughs> yeah. you know, and, and certainly there, there's a lot of things that, that have been won, you know, starting with sort of the revolutionary war. So then to suggest that it still exists at a level using the word systemic to some people, it can feel like a slap in the face to everything that came before And the people that fought and died in the Civil War, I mean, this is just one argument I've heard from people where it grinds their gears so much when you talk about racism using that label of systemic. No, that's an interesting thought. Again, I would say if it's, you know, a lot of offendedness over that, again, you know, we we can and should be appreciative of of the many good things that we have, you know, through both our, our families of origin and our countries of origin and all that. But but at the end of the day, as Christians, our primary identity is who we are in Christ, Mm. you know, and and as Christians, you know, you mentioned kind of this, well, we we arrived, right? We we had a problem and we overcame it and now we've arrived. Well, okay, obviously there were certain steps that were big wins and and let's not deny that, right? There, There has been a lot of improvement. And that's one thing that I've I've also heard some people kind of react to in this whole discussion. It's like, well, I feel like you're saying like there's been no improvement. Well, that's absurd because obviously, you know, slavery is not legalized anymore. You know, there have there have been certain protections and rights enshrined in the Civil Rights Acts. So, I mean, nobody is saying that by talking about systemic racism that there's been zero improvement. It's only saying that we still have some work to do. And really, as Christians, that's something that we ought to agree with. I mean, Paul says, you know, I don't talk as one who has arrived. You know, I'm I'm still pressing on. I'm still pressing forward. None of us arrives. You know, no no individual. You know, and by implication, certainly no no earthly nation arrives at perfection. You know, until we're face to face with Jesus. So, you know, I, I would say that if that's a concept that somebody's getting offended about, like, oh, well, you're saying that, you know, we we haven't sort of arrived at this pr- place of perfection. Well, no, we haven't. None of us have. 
that's biblical, but you know, again, in the end, you need to decide which narrative is more important for you. This narrative of kind of, you know, American, I guess, you know, achieving of perfection or whatever it is you want to call it, or the biblical narrative, which says that, you know, we're on, we're on the, we're on the way, right? We're, we're still in process. Oh, that's good. And, and that's the interesting thing to me is when it comes to most sins, most Christians would agree that we haven't arrived and we haven't completely overcome. Like I even know people who at one time they had a sex addiction or a porn addiction and they overcame it. But then they would say like, oh, well, I still battle with lust and there's still an issue there. And so I still need to overcome. I I still need to fight and battle that sin in my life. And so I think it's interesting when it comes to this topic of racism it's one where people want to say, well, that's, that's done. And that's that it's in the past that's taken care of. So, so I think one of the reasons that that is, I, I mentioned this a little while ago, is that it's kind of this area in, in current American culture, particularly where, you know, maybe there's a lot of things that the Bible says are sin that, you know, current culture doesn't say are sin and, and, you know, even if you're doing them, well, nobody's really going to look down on you, you know, but, but with racism, here's an area where the cultural actually, culture actually says, no, this is sin. No, it doesn't right. maybe necessarily right. use the word sin, right? But it says it's evil, it's wrong, it's unacceptable. Yes. Yeah. You know, and so again, to, to admit that, wow, you know, well, I, I can't accept this possibility that I, I still have, you know, this thing, cause I would be ashamed, you know, you know, I don't want to be guilty of that. But again, the gospel says that, you know, on the one hand, we are guilty, right? We, we had all this shame and Christ has taken it for us, right? We don't, we don't repent because we haven't been forgiven. We repent because we are forgiven as Christians, hmm. right? It's, it's actually what allows us to, to be free and quick to repent is because we know that God is already taking care of, you know, these issues of guilt and shame, Right. You know, but unfortunately, I think people are more worried about, well, you know, if I if I admit this, well, how how will my coworkers look at me or how will my neighbors look at me if I say like, yeah, I've actually got a racism problem, which ironically, it's when you deny that you have even the slightest trace of racism that you probably actually still have a good bit to deal with. And the people who are kind of more sensitive towards it around you you know, they don't applaud you for saying, oh, I don't have any racism. If anything, it would be better if you kind of admitted the areas where it's creeping through. Right. Yeah, totally. That makes sense. You know, you know, I think the people who listen to this show, they know that, you know, we often challenge what would be considered to be mainstream political thought on things because we're trying to push people to think outside of the political lines and think theologically about things and to not let political influences be the main influence on how they think. Because again, I think Jesus doesn't lean left or right. I think the kingdom of God transcends earthly politics. And so earthly politics can't be our framework for things. It's not that we want people to be less conservative and more liberal or less liberal, more conservative. We're trying to help people free themselves from kind of the shackles of that narrow-minded way of thinking. But one of the things I'm trying to do is just to help people think outside of those boxes.
so with that in mind, there's something I want to address. Many of my friends that I've talked to have expressed frustration because one thing that's coming from the political left right now is this rhetoric about racism, basically this idea that only white people can be racist. In the entire face of the world, they're the only ones that can be racist because they've been in this position of power over minorities. And for me, like, you know, I've, I've pushed up against that because I can acknowledge that in the story of America, in the history of America, and in the history of a lot of Western Europe, of course there has been a history of white people oppressing minorities, for sure. But to say that because of that history, to then say that only white people can be racist, I, I was talking to a friend of mine who's a, a bit more of a left-leaning guy, and I just asked him, I was like, okay, so let's, like, hypothetical. If a white kid goes to an inner city school and let's just say a bunch of black kids make fun of that white kid or, or mock him because of the color of their skin, do you call that racism? Like, is, is that racist? Because that seems to fit the profile. Like if it was a bunch of white kids mocking a black kid, we would call that racist. And my friend responded and was like, oh, well, no, that's not racism. That's something else. That's maybe prejudice, but it's not racist. And yeah, I mean, it's it's hard for me to fully get on board with that. And I know for a lot of other people, it's, it's, it's hard to get on board with that. So we have these terms, but no one can really agree. You know, conservatives and liberals are kind of speaking a different language at one another, and they're defining terms differently. So, you know, I'm going down the rabbit hole right now of academics and modern academic thought and definitions, but it can just be frustrating because, you know, basically it feels, for some, it can feel like an attack on white people. From the more conservative side of thing, I see this sentiment posted all the time on social media where it just feels like, ah, the whole world is against white people and everybody is against us. And they think that we're all just a bunch of flaming racists. So, I mean, what do you think, Ben? Can you speak into that at all? Yeah, I think, you know, for, first of all, let's let's clarify. And this is something that I actually had a few questions on the articles that I wrote and, and mm-hmm. had some good conversation with some people. One thing that I pointed out is that, you know, this is a sin issue. The Mm. Bible says that we're all born sinners. Mm. It doesn't matter what color you are, right? Whether you're white or black or Latino or Asian or whatever else, you know, any individual is capable really of any sin, you know, and and racism is is among those, you know, so if, if, you know, I don't know, let's, I mean, again, I'm here in Ukraine, right? So, so while, while we do have a, a, a very few, Hand, let's say a handful of, of African students that study in the universities here, there's really not, not many black people at all, right? But, you know, there, there, are, there are a handful of other minorities here, although it's predominantly Ukrainian. You know, can, can one of the Turkish taxi drivers or can, you know, one of the Roma or Gypsy, otherwise called, you know, if they have hatred or uh, antipathy towards you know, let's say Ukrainian because they're Ukrainian. Is that racism? Of course it is because it's based on the race or or let's say their ethnicity. I mean, tomato, tomato, right? Yeah. You know, now it's different when you ask, what about systemic racism? Individual Individual racism, any individual can really, I mean, be guilty of. Systemic racism implies that you have the power to create a system. So really power or authority is somewhat of an equivalent, uh, um, sorry, not an equivalent, but uh, a necessary uh, ingredient 
to create kind of these these structures of systemic racism. Right. So like an analogy for that might be to put it in practical terms. So if you drop 10 black people and 10 white people on a deserted island and let's say, you know, there's none of that cultural baggage that comes with it. It's just 10 people with black skin, 10 people with white skin. And if the 10 white people on the island come up with all of a sudden this governmental structure that oppresses the black people, that would be systemic racism. And then by the same token, if the black people were to come up with some system that then oppressed the white people, that would also be systemic racism. Is that is that OK or is that like too simplistic? It's I, it's not too simplistic. The only problem with that equation is that you've got them, got them split 50 50. Right. Almost, almost in all cases, not always. They're, they're Let's say 10 and 3, you know, either, either way. <laughs> right, yeah. And why do I say that? Because normally power comes with the majority. Right. Right. So so typically, you know, for, for to set in place a systemic, you know, a, a racist system, let's put it that way, you know, you need to have power. And again, that usually comes with sort of a majority culture. Okay. Now, that's not always the case. Historically, there have been exceptions where, you know, there's sort of a, a politically powerful minority that rules and oppresses somebody who's actually ethnically a majority, just, you know, straight numbers wise. But it's again, it's about it's about which group has power in that case. Right. Now, if let's let's take it from the island and go back to the United States. Obviously, you know, the, the, the white, you know, colonists and then, and then, you know, once America became a country, they were the ones that really had the power, they had the technology, they brought over, you know, black people as slaves, you know, so there was really no question there of who had the power. And again, as we've already said, for hundreds of years, they created systems that were designed to oppress black people. And even though, again, there's been great strides forward, you can't you can't have those kinds of systems for just, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years and expect them just to kind of, you know, at, at the yeah. signing of a pen, just dissipate within the that's span of really 50 years. That's not really how anything yeah. works. No, yeah, yeah, that's a fair point, I think. So going back to the idea of systemic racism, I just want to bring up a very common pushback that I've heard, and I'm sure that you've heard. And Maybe you even heard this from responses to the writing of your article. So I'd love to get your take. So this year we've had protests and riots that are a direct response to law enforcement when it comes to the handling of race and black people and minorities. And for me personally, this year, you know, I've heard a lot of evidences for systemic racism when it comes to things like law enforcement and the court and incarceration of minorities and the way that law enforcement handles minorities and you know, so, so for me, as somebody consuming information, I'm seeing that on one side and then consistently on the other side, I'm seeing white conservative and, and, and some actually black conservative pundits pushing back and saying, oh, that's that's just that's not real. There's not really that evidence. It's fake. It's false. It's fake news. There's just this debate on the two sides. And, and basically it's boiled down to if I can, it's, it's boiled down to black people are protesting and rioting because they're saying that they are disproportionately shot and killed by police officers when they're unarmed. But then the the more conservative pundits will look and they'll say, well, look at the statistics. It's actually white people that are shot unarmed more than black people. So they'll say, the pundits will say, you know, really black people have no right to complain because they have it way better than white people when it comes to the average amount of people that are shot by the police. So you know, for me, that's been something as a pastor where I'm struggling to filter through this information because we live in this age where there's 
these two ideologies that are constantly fighting this left leaning ideology and this right leaning ideology that are constantly trying to define what truth is. And, and there's this huge debate for me as a pastor, what I'm constantly wondering as I filter through this information is how do I respond to this? How do I filter this information? What's the correct way to think about this? I mean, you know, obviously you can hear those sorts of statistics from time to time. And yes, I've heard them too. If you dig into, and this means, you know, you actually have to get into sort of some of the academic literature and studies. But if you dig into it, you know, some of those statistics to say, oh, well, you know, black people actually aren't disproportionately targeted. Really what's happening is a bit of cherry picking of statistics. There are certain certain ways or certain qualifications that people use to kind of, you know, make make them say what they want them to say. I mean, you know, there's that old saying of, you know, lies, damn lies and statistics. Right. Mm. Which I can do that because Pastor Chuck would would do that. <laughs> he would he would quote things that you're like, wow, Chuck just said that. So, you know, but but at the end of the day, if you dig into these things, you, you know, black people do suffer disproportionately, you know, not obviously not amount wise, because black people are only, you know, 12 or 13% of the population in America. So are there more white people that are shot by police in America? Sure. But that's because there's a lot more white people, right? You know, and, and I mean, this is not the place to dig into all the numbers. I actually did in my first article, I linked a couple academic studies on these questions. So those who are interested in looking at that can, you know, follow the links and actually read some of the numbers. But yeah, that that to say that, you know, just because somebody cherry picks a statistic to say, oh, well, it's actually not a problem. You need to dig deeper. Yeah, that's that's a good point. And, you know, the, the place my mind goes to in these situations is there's really two things that we're talking about. We're we're talking about one racism, which, to be fair, every time a white police officer shoots a black person. We can't look at every single scenario and just automatically say, oh, it's racism. Because sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's a cop just making a bad call. Sometimes it's literally just a bad police decision. Other times a criminal is shot because they're committing a crime. But then we can't also deny that there still is the problem of racism existing. And sometimes there are police officers acting in a racist way, the problem of racism existing isn't just boiled down to does a person of one race hate another person from another race? Sometimes there's circumstances where the reason the trigger was pulled was because of either outright racism where a cop actually has, you know, very deep seated, hateful feelings towards the minority group. That's that's real. You know, I was watching a YouTube video the other night from a guy who used to be a cop and and he was telling his experience of what it was like to be on the police force in his town. And he was saying when he worked on the precinct, he was basically trained, not officially through official training, but trained by the example of the other officers on the force and things that other officers said to him. He was trained by them to hate minorities and just to assume that all minorities were criminals and assume that they were all up to no good and assume that they were less than human. So I'm just saying that does happen. It's not the case across the board. We can't make blanket statements and say every cop is like this or every black person is like this or every minority is like this. But I'm just trying to say that this stuff does happen. So obviously every case is different. But one thought I've had is, again, right, there's two things we're talking about. One is racism. And then the other issue, number two, is police brutality. So I've heard in the conversation of race and many comment threads on the discussion where basically someone will bring up, you know, oh, black people are complaining, but... 
what about white people who get shot, you know, wrongfully as well? And they bring up a guy like Daniel Shaver. I don't know if you are familiar with that story, but Daniel Shaver, there's a video footage that you can watch. It's pretty gruesome, but it's this white guy who was gunned down in a hotel hallway, totally innocent. He's on the ground, you know, begging for his life, saying, I don't have a weapon. He's got his hands in the air. But he was shot by this cop who made a terrible, terrible decision. So people are like, hey, what about that? What about Daniel Shaver? Like, black people are complaining about getting shot, but white people get shot too. And they'll bring it up as like a deflection, like stop talking about racism. But my thing is like, well, hold on, like black people, white people, we're we're kind of talking about similar problems. Like if there's a problem affecting one group, if the problem of police brutality is affecting black people and then for white people to say, well, it also affects us. The solution probably isn't to say, well, that my complaint cancels out your complaint. So just no one should complain. The I think the solution should probably be like, let's join together, right? Like as people, as black people and white people, let's say we should care about police brutality. The answer isn't to say that all police are brutal, but we should care about police brutality. And for me, like if I'm listening to a black person talk about their experience with police brutality, my response should be like, oh man, like, yes, I'm listening to what you have to say. I'm so sorry that this has affected your family. Here's some of the ways it's affected mine. Wow, let's let's grieve together. Let's talk about solutions to this problem together instead of just saying, you know, my pain cancels out your pain. Does that does that make sense? You, you know, you know what I mean? Oh yeah, for sure. You know, and that's I mean, there's two things here. First of all, you know, you're right. Not only black people or minorities get you know wrongfully killed by police. So there is a question of police culture and use of force. You know, the other issue is. I mean, you know, you, you used an example, I believe, of of this, you know, uh, YouTube video where a cop was kind of talking about how he was unofficially, right, trained to look down on minorities. And that really, I mean, kind of that unofficial training, right? I mean, they say that culture is more caught than taught. And that's really kind of starting to get at, you know, an area where you see systemic racism creeping through, even though there's no legislation saying you should suspect minorities, Right. But, you know, if, if a cop is maybe more inclined, even even kind of in a way at a subconscious level to to use more violence or to know that, you know, he can do so with impunity because it's less likely that anyone, you know, will will, will kind of push back. You know, these these are areas where, you know, again, this the, the systemic racism issue really kind of seeps through. Yeah, that makes sense. I fully agree with that. And, you know, I, I think I'd love to know. If this is something where you feel maybe we're on the right track here, when it comes to systemic racism, remember how I was talking about, you know, the boomer pastor and the millennial pastor and the boomer pastor had this perspective of, you know, when you say systemic racism, you're saying the entire system is broken and every cop is racist and every judge is racist. And I just don't think that's right. I think for us as younger pastors, we'd agree with that guy. We'd say, no, yeah, I don't agree with that. I I don't think that's right. I don't think every judge and cop and police force is racist. That's not what we're saying. What we're saying is there are some places that have brokenness and we're just raising awareness of that. We're saying, let's find these places where there are issues. Let's find the problems where they are. Let's root it out and let's make a change. And I think that's what you have to do as a society. I mean, there's so many TED Talks, right, about different things like child sex trafficking or abortion or prostitution or bullying, you name it. There's so many things that we could talk about where it's like, hey, this is still a problem. We need to address it when it arises. 
and we need to do something about it. And I, I think that's the perspective we should have towards systemic racism, not let's burn the entire system down and not, you know, let's riot, let's set the city on fire and just demand and scream at politicians until we get our way. That's not how anything works. But I think acknowledging this as a problem and just continuing to fight it throughout our lives because it's not going to go away overnight. And we're probably not going to fix it in 2020 or 2021. This is an ongoing battle. And really, it's going to take Christians leading the way and pointing people to solutions that I would say are bipartisan solutions and solutions that are gospel-centered solutions. Yeah. Martin Luther King, who, you know, kind of was obviously champion of, of civil rights, you know, and kind of well known for his nonviolent approach to the whole thing. There is a speech where, you know, he he mentions that although he doesn't, you know, approve it or think that it's necessarily helpful, but he says that riots are the language of the unheard, right? When they feel when they, it's kind of out of this place of just desperation, frustration, you know, they just they just don't know what else to do. And so, you know, we can while we can look at that and say, you know, this is obviously not helpful at the same time, you know, you you can to a degree sympathize with you know, those who feel like they just have no recourse, they are, they're being gunned down, you know, and, and there's really nothing that they can do about it because this, this other person, you know, has decided so, and they have the power. So again, that's not saying that it's good or right, but that, you know, this is where things come from. And so, you know, ignoring the issue, like that's not going to solve anything that only makes things worse. Instead, we need to, we do need to acknowledge it. We need, we do need to, you know, have, and again, I I know, you know, the word discussion, we need to have a discussion, but we need to not just end with the discussion. It's not just about discussion. It's about, you know, what kind of helpful steps can we be supportive of, you know, and and you mentioned kind of, well, you know, black people aren't, aren't, aren't the only people who suffer from police violence and that's true. And what's interesting, and I totally agree with what you said, it's like, well, why not? Why shouldn't that be even more of a reason to find a solution then? Right. You right, know, exactly. and, and some of the some of the things that, you know, many of those who are protesting now are proposing are really just good, healthy, common sense measures on kind of, you know, making sure that, you know, violence isn't overused, that there's accountability. I'm referring specifically to the issue of, of you know, Law use of force by, yeah. by police, police right now. Yeah. You know, so why would, I mean, you know, although it's less likely, I also don't want to be shot while I'm unarmed by a police officer. Why, why would I not support that, you know? Just right. doesn't, doesn't make a lot of sense. So let's talk a minute about the idea of racism in the heart. Why do you think so many people are violently opposed to that notion that there might be some racism in their hearts? Like the way I see people react to the suggestion, just the mere suggestion that there might be racism in their hearts. It's almost like you suggested that there might be something as evil as the temptation to become a serial killer in their heart. That's how strongly people react to it. They're like, oh man, like, no, like no way I could never. Uh, That's that's not really how people react to most sins. Like if you talk about dishonesty or lust or bad attitudes or anger or jealousy, most people in church just nod their heads and go, yeah, you know, I, I struggle with that. 
it's good to bring this up. But if you suggest racism, people become very opposed to that. Why, why do you think that is? And what can we as leaders and pastors do to help people see that this is actually a problem and to encourage people to humble their hearts and examine their own hearts when it comes to racism? So this goes back to something I was mentioning a little earlier. You know, you talked about Christians usually have no problems. Yeah, I struggle with lust. You know, yeah, I, I struggle with anger. And I think that part of that, again, is because within the culture, you know, overall, like the culture doesn't even care if you lust. Like, it's like, yeah, go for it. You know, you know, sleep with whoever you want, whenever you want. And so the only, I guess, to put it in a way that, that I think makes sense, it seems to me like we care more about the opinion of people around us than we do about the opinion of God. And I think that it's not so much that we are overselling racism. It's like, oh my gosh, this is so horrible. Well, yeah, it is so horrible, but that we're underselling the other sins probably, right? That, that you know, lust and greed and, and just, you know, and, and malice are, are also horrid things. And then the other side of that, I would say, is the reason that I think probably people react in the way that they do is because they can't come to grips with, you know, wow, I'm actually this bad. And the reason that we can't come to grips with that is because we have a very anemic gospel. Too many Christians, I think, see the gospel as like, oh, well, you know, yeah, I'm a sinner. Yeah, God forgave me you know, kind of, that was a great push start. And now I got to do real good, you know, and then, and then God will stay happy with me. Well, if that's your gospel, then no wonder that you're freaking out, even thinking about the possibility that you might have this horrible sin in your heart. But the reality is that, that all of your sins are that horrible and way more horrible than we even know. And yet Christ took them on himself. He took, you know, that wrath upon himself. He took our shame upon himself and when the father looks at us, he sees Jesus. He sees Jesus's righteousness. He's pleased with us as he is with his own son. And when you understand that, then you can, you can acknowledge on the one hand the depth and the horror of your sinfulness without despairing. And you can rejoice that, you know, even with that level of, of sin, Christ loves me. Christ sees me as, as perfect and beautiful because of his grace. So I think really, you know, it's like I said, you know, how, how, how can the heart change? And, and I did note this in our second article, that's only through the gospel. You know, we can talk about making a stand in society and yes, we should promote, you know, policies and stances that, you know, uh, are aligned with this biblical value of, you know, all people being God's image, you know, love for neighbor, compassion for the oppressed and all these things. But at the end of the day, the only thing that's going to change people on a heart level is the gospel itself. And that's that's really good. Can I can I ask a personal yeah. question of you as a white Christian born in America and now a missionary to the Ukraine? Where have you seen and acknowledged racism in your own heart? And how did you get to the point where you were able to actually acknowledge it? That's a really good question. And I, I, I was kind of waiting for you to ask me that. I'm like, I wonder when he's going to ask me how I've done this in my own heart. You know, like I said, you know, I've, I've lived my entire adult life in Ukraine. And we actually, I actually just recently preached on, we're going through Ephesians, we were in chapter two, kind of Paul talks about God, you know, reconciling Jews and Gentiles, kind of racial reconciliation, you know, so really kind of on this topic. And we have home groups, home fellowships that we kind of, you know, go through the sermon and really kind of talk about 
how do we apply this to our hearts? You know, like I said, in, in Ukraine, there's really only like a handful of, of Africans and they're mostly, you know, students in the various universities here. You know, probably, you know, for, for Ukraine, the group that's looked down on the most is the Romas or Gypsies. They actually, there was a recent sociological poll taken among Ukrainians, and basically it showed that like 40% of the respondents said that they think that the Gypsies should be kicked out of the country. Like they, oh, they didn't wow. even want them living here. You know, you know, and I had to check my heart. Well, you know, do I kind of look more suspiciously at somebody when they look like a gypsy than when they look like a Ukrainian? Mm, you know? Yeah, yeah. You know, or like somebody, somebody else in our home fellowship, you know, said, well, yeah, you know, I, I guess I now that I stopped to think about it, I sort of subconsciously almost shift my purse over to the other side when I see a gypsy near me, mm. you know, and it's it's not. I mean, you know, it's one thing if, if you can tell the person's kind of like, you know, a drug addict or whatever, and they might actually be trying to pick your pocket. But, you know, just because of their ethnicity, I mean, that's, you know, let's call it what it is. That's racism. Yeah. It doesn't mean you hate the person, but you're, you've got a prejudice. You're looking down at them, you know, and so I, you know, I have when I see things like that in my heart and it happens, I have to acknowledge it. But like I said, what allows me to acknowledge it is knowing that, you know, first of all, God knows this is there. It's no surprise to him. It doesn't shake my standing with him in the slightest. Yeah. You know, I'm still loved. I'm still righteous in Christ. And it's because of that gospel, that good news that I can, uh, again, I can, I can come and even joyfully in a way repent. Like I said earlier in the conversation, we don't repent to be forgiven. We repent because we're forgiven. That's good. If we're Christians. Man, that's, that's so good. I think, I think you're highlighting by sharing your story that prejudice is something that is kind of a part of our human sin nature, something that we all deal with. And, you know, for me and my story, I was a youth pastor and you know, let's just take race out of it. Let's just talk about families. As a youth pastor, I remember having one kid who was kind of rambunctious and really disruptive. And then he graduated out of the group. And when I got his younger brother in the group, they said, oh, you know, he's the same way. They were like, he's, he's just like his brother. He's super rambunctious and crazy. And so, you know, if a third brother were to come along in the group, I think my natural prejudice would be to think, oh, no, this kid's going to be trouble. He's going to cause issues, which I think, again, you know, it's, it's a part of human sin nature to be prejudiced. And I don't necessarily know that, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe there's some level of pragmatism to thinking that way. But I think ultimately God would want me to judge everybody individually and not come up with these assumptions that affect my behavior towards somebody because they share somebody else's genes, you know? So, you know, my story when it comes to racism you know, I grew up in Vista, California, which is predominantly white and Hispanic, but the black population is really only about 1.2%. So I was hardly around any black people growing up. And I went to a private Christian school that was probably 99% white. So my idea of the black experience in America was informed not by actual living black people telling me what their experience was, but it was informed by, you know, the story of Martin Luther King Jr. And what I learned in history class about the Civil War and segregation and the Civil Rights Movement. And then, you know, movies like Remember the Titans, which is a really, really good movie that my dad watched with us about 20 million times when we were a kid. Have you have you seen it? I have seen it. Yes, it's so good. It's so good. So anyway, I, I won't <laughs> argue with you on that point. <laughs> 
right? So I remember, you know, remember the Titans giving me this idea of, you know, we've overcome this and everything's great now. And, you know, I was in this environment that didn't really have any visible racism against black people. And because of the story of Martin Luther King Jr., I grew up with this idea that racism was solved and it wasn't a problem anymore. And then when I was in my late teens, Obama ran for president and suddenly I became aware very quickly of like, oh my gosh, racism is still very much a thing. And the saddest part of it was my exposure to racism was through Christians. It was seeing how many conservative Christians reacted to the reality of a black president. And because he was a Democrat, it seemed to almost give them an excuse for racism. And I'm being honest here. I'm not just saying, oh, they, you know, they disagreed with his political positions and I interpreted that as racism. I'm talking about I, I heard people that I knew in my life say racist things and racist jokes about Obama and, and use their political opposition to him as sort of an excuse for their racism. And that was really troubling for me. And it, it made me evaluate others, but I hadn't even realized my need for self-evaluation. I grew up, you know, in my mind with this idea that there wasn't any racism in me. And if you had suggested that to me, you know, I would have been offended because I viewed myself as somebody who just loves everyone equally and didn't have any prejudice. But then there was a mentor of mine who actually exposed to me this reality of racism, not just meaning that you hate another race. Racism can be the assumptions and prejudices that you internalize that make you think about somebody else of a different race a certain way. And I started thinking about it and I was like, okay, you know, when I'm in LA or San Diego downtown and I'm walking the streets at night with my wife, if I see a man walking towards us at 10 o'clock at night at a dark street, if the man is black, there's something in me that would actually be more afraid in that situation than if the guy was white. And actually, to be honest, the blacker his skin was, the darker the skin was, the more afraid I would get. And so just realizing this, I was like, man, that in my own heart, that is there a certain type of racism. That's me judging somebody and making assumptions because of the color of their skin. And, and, and I'm trying to figure out, you know, where does that come from? And I started to realize I grew up watching a lot of media that depicted black people as gang members and criminals. And so in my mind, in my psyche, when I saw them, I thought of them in that way. And, and, you know, I don't think that makes me like this terrible, hateful white supremacist. I don't think that really ever affected my kindness towards a black person. But I did see that some racism was there and it did influence some things about me. And so I don't know. I mean, does that make sense? What, what, what do you think about the idea of subconscious bias? Is that something that Christians should be aware of? And, and how can we as leaders call people to examine their own hearts to fight against that? Yeah, that's a really great question. And, and thanks for sharing kind of your story. I think that, I mean, I think it lines up with, you know, again, this very biblical idea. David writes in Psalm 19, he says, how can I know all of the sins? This is a, I forget which translation this is. It's one of the modern ones. How can I know all the sins lurking in my heart? Cleanse me from these hidden faults, right? Mm, yeah. You know, so, so the Bible lays out very clearly that we have sin issues in our hearts that we are not even aware of. Yeah. And so is there subconscious sin? Yes, there is. You know, it has it been, again, like we said, because we're living in a broken world, in a sinful system, right? The world, quote unquote, 
you know, these things kind of, they, they get inculcated. It's in the air we breathe, you know, before, before we really even kind of make a conscious choice. And, you know, in some cases, people might not make too much of a conscious choice. Like you said, it's not like you were, you know, became a member of the Aryan nation and, <laughs> and were a white supremacist or something. Right. But yet, nevertheless, you know, you at some point, the Holy Spirit, you know, made you conscious, made you aware of this issue and it was it was an area that you needed to repent of, right? And the, the truth is, we all have these areas, and it's not just in racism; it's in a lot of things. But at the moment, we're talking about racism, and that's sort of the thing: is that you know we we shouldn't you know kind of treat this sin entirely differently than other sins, right? Yeah. So you know, do I have areas of greed? I mean, you know, try asking a person if they're greedy, and this is this is kind <laughs> of the analogy. This is the analogy I used in my first article, right? It's like, well, I'm not greedy. I just want a little more, you know, which was, you know, Rockefeller's famous statement. Supposedly, they interviewed him and asked, you know, richest guy on the planet in the history of the earth, how much money does a person need to be happy? Well, a little bit more, you know. None of us thinks we're greedy, but, but, but the truth is we probably are. But we live in a culture that promotes greed and, and consumerism, you know, and so if we're actually sensitive to where God is convicting convicting us of those things, then we need to say, you know, Lord, where where is it? You know, cleanse me of my my hidden faults. Show me, you know, these these sins that are lurking in my heart. Yeah. Again, not so that we can engage in self flagellation, and not because we're not forgiven, but because we are forgiven. Because you know, we are we're we're kids of 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 the Lord, you know, we're his children, mm. you know, and we want to enjoy him more. We want to honor him with our whole lives. Mm. And so this, this is that process again, going back to what Paul said that, you know, I haven't attained yet. I'm not perfect. You know, I've still got plenty of areas. And in fact, if, if I can digress on this just for a second, you know, Paul kind of in one of his earlier letters, he says, you know, well, I'm the least of the apostles. And you're like, okay, Paul, but you're still an apostle. So that's pretty cool. You know, and then in a later epistle, you know, he says, I'm the least of all the saints, of all the Christians. And you're like, mm, okay, that sounds humble. You know, and then towards the end of his life, he's writing to Timothy and he says, I'm the chief of all sinners. And you're like, hold on, Paul, what's going on? Like, like, are you getting worse? And of course, he wasn't getting worse. What was happening is that the more we see our sinfulness, that's a mark of Christian sanctification. Mm. You know, but at the same time, he didn't despair because that allowed him to appreciate the depth of God's grace even more. Yeah. So, again, as we kind of, you know, we shouldn't be afraid. Again, in light of the gospel, we Christians, we're the ones that can be bold in saying, you know, I have areas of racism in my heart. You know, I, I want to grow from it, you know, because we have we have the answer to that. Mm. Yeah, so. that's really good. So at times when people talk about systemic racism, it can cause a, a really defensive and f kind of a, you know, freak out reaction from people when you use that word systemic, because it's like, oh my gosh, like you're, you're calling the entire system, the entire country, even like the entire constitution racist. <laughs> right. I mean, you know, if, if we're talking the original constitution, I mean, it says that black people are three fifths of a human. So was right. it racist? Yes. Sorry. That part was. Now, that doesn't mean that the, the that. whole. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's up to you. But that does not mean that the whole thing is worthless. Right. That does not mean that none of the things that were enshrined 
you know, in in the Declaration of Independence, in in the Constitution, were you know somehow worthless. Of course not. Yeah. What it, what it shows simply is that there was a serious inconsistency. The Declaration of Independence says right that all men were created equal. Yeah. Right. So I mean, it's like, wait a minute. Yeah, they were right all created there. equal, yeah. but then you know, a few lines down, you're like, "Well, except for black people, we're three fifths yeah. of a person." It's it's, it's, like, <laughs> it's an uncomfortable right? part of our past that we have to yeah. grapple with. So in talking about systemic racism, there's this opposition to talking about the word systemic. And what I find is interesting is we as Christians have been talking about systemic injustice for years in in other ways. For instance, abortion. That's something we would say. This is injustice against the unborn at a systemic level. The government supports it. The media supports it, right? I mean, there's a system and it's broken and it supports abortion. Another thing would be you know, church persecution, you know, we in the American church, you know, unfortunately at times have called many things persecution that really aren't persecution when you compare it to what's going on to missionaries in other countries. I see all the time American Christians have this perception that there is systemic injustice happening against Christians. It's the system. It's the media out to get Christians. It's the government out to get Christians. It's the way that we talk. So we've been talking about systemic injustice for years, and it's crazy to me that we're so closed off to the idea that it could be happening to black people. When it's exactly as you said, you know, the first so many hundred years of our country's history, systemic injustice played a role. We enslaved a group of people and built the country on their backs. So, you know, it's just bizarre to me that at this point, we're like, oh, no, it's gone. It's gone forever. Racism, not a problem. It's it's just, it's gone. Systemic injustice exists in other places like abortion and Christian persecution, but it's completely gone when it comes to racism. I'm not, I'm not saying the entire system is racist or broken. I'm just saying it's bizarre to me that we are content to assume that it's just non-existent at this moment in any way, shape or form. Well, I would say that that I mean, to kind of compare it with abortion, right? You know, so so abortion is legal. And in and while people are happy to maybe admit that this is a systemic problem, you know, perhaps again, maybe maybe not, but perhaps for some, they would say, well, if we could get abortion banned, you know, kind of across the board, right. all cases, then it would no longer be a systemic problem. Well, you know, let's let's assume, you know, if that were ever to happen, what if what if, you know, OK, let's say officially it got banned. But but, you know, media or parts of the media went on, you know, acting or talking like it was a positive thing. What if, you know, yeah, you didn't probably have what would happen? Maybe maybe exactly. Maybe not directly legal things, but there would be sort of you know, secondary things that could be used that would, you know, maybe maybe certain drugs that would, would have, you know, potential strong side effects of causing an abortion, you know, and you'd get people prescribing them to women who in reality actually wanted the abortion, but, but that's not why they're being prescribed. And so therefore it's still happening, even though it's not legal. This is the thing is that, you know, when we talk about systemic, is legislation a big part of that? Yes. But is it the only part of it? No. And there are also secondary, you know, let's say policies that can be enacted, which on the surface, it doesn't look like they're saying, you know, we're continuing legal abortion or, you know, we're continuing slavery or, you know, Jim Crow laws, mm -hmm. you know, but in reality, in effect, that's what's happening. You know, and I'm, I'm thinking of an example as far as the racism issue. 
you know, redlining of housing districts where there were certain yeah. districts where you could not get a loan to buy a house. And it was targeted specifically at African-Americans. Yep. You know, and so officially, are they oppressing the black people? No. But is it that actually what's happening? Yes. Yeah. Uh, and so that's why when we talk about systemic, yes, we should look at legislation, but we should also look at secondary policies mm. That, mm. that have the same effect. We should look at maybe even, you know, kind of policies on the level of, say, you know, a corporation, how, how they treat people, things like that. Yeah, it's a good way of looking at it. And I would agree with that. I think with systemic issues to me, I feel like we just need to be intellectually honest about it. And I feel like when we're living in this age of political punditry, it's almost like whoever can quote the most statistics is the one who wins, or at least in their minds, they, they win the argument. And it's all about winning. It's all about winning the debate. And it's not actually about doing anything. You know, I, I think, for instance, one thing I've seen from a guy like, let's say, Ben Shapiro, for example, he's put out some videos where he'll say, Everyone's saying systemic racism is a problem, but if you look at this statistic and this statistic and this statistic, it's actually not as much of a problem as they're saying it is. And so therefore, his conclusion is kind of we should just not worry about it because it's not as bad as the left wing media says it is. Like I heard him basically in a video saying the percentage of black people affected by this is small. And so why are they complaining? Why are they protesting? That's his logic, right? It's this small percentage. And so why should people complain? And this is where my mind went with it. I just thought, okay, well, let's, let's take the same logic and apply it to like sex abuse in the church. Like for me as a pastor, I'm appalled by that. I was reading uh, statistics about, you know, there, there was this one denomination and it was talking about how many people have been abused by either pastors or volunteers in that denomination. And this is a big denomination, right? And I was looking at the numbers of how many reports came in. And, and I, just as an experiment, I ran the numbers of how many people had claimed that they had been abused by pastors or volunteers in their church's denomination. I was looking at the denomination. I was like, okay, there's this many number of churches in the United States of this denomination. And then I took the amount of abuse cases that had been reported and I did some math on it and it came out to basically like, you know, 1.5% of pastors have been abusive. Uh, it was like 700 of them in the, the denomination over the past 20 years. And between the 700 pastors and volunteers, there was about twice as many victims as that throughout all of them. And I was looking at that number again and it was like 1.5%. And you could say like, okay, 1.5%, that, that's not really that big a deal. But it is, like to me it is, that's a big deal for me as a pastor. Like I, I look at the sex abuse in the church and I'm like, okay, the number says 1.5%, but I'm still heartbroken by that. I'm still horrified that this is happening to people at a systemic level. I'm not saying that the entire denomination is broken. Obviously that, you know, that's a pretty small number of people but it's happening enough that it's hurting people and there's people getting away with it for years and not getting caught. And so to me as a pastor, I'm like, I want to know what can we do to make this better? You know, I'm looking at that denomination, but then I'm asking for, you know, for even my own denomination. Like I want to know for my own church movement, what can we learn from this study and how can we grow and make sure this doesn't happen to our people? I don't want to just say, ah, you know, it's just 1.5%. So who the heck cares? But I feel like that's the attitude people are taking with their statistics or or with their statistical analysis. They're saying, 
Well, you you really shouldn't be complaining because the number isn't as big as you actually think it is. But to me, it's like if that number exists at all, we should be talking about it and thinking about it and fighting against it. Right. I mean, I think I think there's two things happening here. One, like I mentioned earlier, is that some of those who would want to deny issues of systemic racism are cherry picking some of their statistics. And you mentioned Ben Shapiro. That's that's actually one one example, you know where if you actually dig a little bit deeper into the ways that some of these numbers are presented, they don't necessarily reflect an accurate picture. But, but secondly, you know, you're right that, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. It's not, it's not, you know, however many number of cases per, you know, I don't know, per thousand or hundred thousand people. It's, you know, this is a real person, you know, like you're talking about these, these abuse scandals, like, okay, maybe if it's one person, you know, or maybe it's, let's say it's 10 pastors, but they're kind of being covered up. Well, what if one of the victims was your daughter? Would you be indifferent then? Yeah, right. Probably not. You know, what if your daughter was Breonna Taylor or George Floyd or whoever else? Would you be indifferent then? Right. And of course, you know, in the case of both George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, those are very complex cases. There's a ton of nuance. There's nuance and debate about whether or not what occurred in those scenarios were racist, whether it was police just acting wrongly, right? There's, there's a debate and discussion to happen there, but I get what you're saying. Like to just be indifferent, we, if that was our daughter, if that was our son, we, we would not be indifferent. I don't think so. You know? Right. So yeah, I mean, I mean, again, you're right. The statistics can tend to hide or, or skew the humanity of the problem. Yeah. And, yeah, and we can't be yeah. callous to that. Yeah, I just feel like when we're when we as Christians are so focused on statistics, because that's the primary way our political pundits that we look up to talk about these issues. It's almost like someone's house catches on fire and they're like, oh, my gosh, I can't believe it's 70 percent of my house burned down. And we go, oh, well, actually, if you really look at the numbers, it's only about 40 percent. So you know, it's like it's it's not what we should be saying in that moment. And I'm not saying truth doesn't matter, but I'm just like, no matter what, a part of the house is burning down. We should care. And like, does the media have an agenda? Absolutely. Yes, it does. When when it comes to the issue of race, does the left wing media have an agenda? Yes, I think it's very clear. But then, you know, does the right wing media have an agenda? Yes. Does Ben Shapiro have an agenda? Yes. It really comes down to, I believe it comes down to power. People are fighting for power And a lot of these issues that happen and arise, when we remove Christianity out of it and we're just looking at it from a secular perspective, it's a lot of times a war for power. It's people grasping for power and money and control and influence and people doing whatever they can to stay on top. And I think it's just important for us as Christians to continue to remind ourselves to separate ourselves from those mentalities of the left and right and try to just look at every situation humbly and thoughtfully and through a biblical and and Christian and Christ-centered perspective. Okay, so as we wrap up this episode, I have a few questions for you about the idea of cultural Marxism. Right, yeah. So for the sake of anyone listening, Marxism is the idea of class systems. It's dividing everybody into classes. 
And this is an oversimplification, but basically it's this idea that in every society you have the oppressors, people who punch down at the little man, and then you have the oppressed, the people who are under the boots of the oppressor. And it's this idea of dividing everybody into these clear-cut categories, you know, white people are oppressors and black people are oppressed, police are oppressors, and everyone else is oppressed. And Hey everybody, this is Aaron from the future. I realized as I was editing this episode that my definition of Marxism was woefully incomplete. Marxism is a topic that I've really only started learning about last year. However, our very own resident Brian Higgins, who was not on this episode, spent a little bit of time studying it during college. So I thought he would do a good job giving us a definition. So I'm going to turn it over to Brian. Here's Brian, everybody. One real quick interruption. This is Brian from the future. As you can certainly tell at this point in the episode, I was not around for the initial conversation between Aaron and Ben. One of the things that we always want to do is represent viewpoints, even of those that we disagree with, as accurately as possible. So Marxism was about more than just the fact that people are divided between different classes. That was actually identified as the problem in Marxism. And so what Marx then espoused was how we get over that kind of divide. And so his hope was that those who were ruled, the lower class, would rise up against the leaders above them and overthrow all the systems, any political system, any religious system, any economic system, and that everything would become government centralized and there would be a complete removal of private property, of even personal identity to some extent, and that everyone would exist purely for the good of their country. The country would be their sole allegiance and that they would give all they had for the country and they would be provided for then from their government. Okay, hope that brings some clarity. Let's get back to the show. With this idea of cultural Marxism cropping up in these discussions where whenever a pastor or a Christian pastor starts talking about racism as a problem in our current climate, I've seen many of these guys, friends of mine who are pastors, get labeled and people saying, oh, you're talking about racism, so I can see you're a cultural Marxist now. What, like, why do you think that is? Why, why do you think that term is rising up in this way? When just talking about racism can get you labeled a cultural Marxist, do you, do you think there's any validity to that label? Like, have you seen any American pastors where you can honestly say like, oh yeah, what they're saying sounds super Marxist? Or do you think the labeling is actually an exaggeration and maybe a label that we shouldn't be throwing around? I think generally speaking, most labels that are just, just labels tend to be unhelpful. First of all, I would say cultural Marxism. I mean, that's, you know, I use it in my article, but I use it in scare quotes. And the reason is because it's actually kind of just a mishmash of conspiracy theory. If you kind of dig into the history of quote unquote cultural Marxism, there was actually a lot of anti-Semitic thinking to, you know, oh, well, it was the Jews who infiltrated Christian American society, yada, yada. The, the more accurate term would be critical race theory. Right, dividing people into different classes based on sexuality and gender and race and that sort of thing. Right, yeah. So critical theory, I mean, that is that is linked with Marxism. You know, but long story short, I mean, it's, it's kind of like, you know, well, if I'm going to talk about, I don't know, owning of property, right, which, I mean, there's some property that's owned in the Bible. Well, you know, therefore, you must be sort of this laissez-faire capitalist. 
no, you know, that I'm just talking about what the Bible talks about. That's it. And you don't get to lump me into your category. Right. You know, and, and there are certain things that may align, but there are lots of other things that don't. You know, the same thing here. It's like, well, well, if I'm talking about, you know, justice for those who are oppressed, hmm. if I'm talking about, you know, the inherent value and worth of all ethnicities, does that make me a racism? No, it makes me a student of the Bible. Yeah, right. You know, and, and do you get to fling racism at, or uh, I'm sorry, the term Marxism at me because, you know, it allows you to ignore what I'm saying? Well, I mean, you can if you want, but, you know, I can, I, I think, you know, if I immediately tell you, you know, I do actually believe, believe in, you know, people owning private property, well, automatically then I'm not a Marxist if you know what <laughs> Marxism is about. Yeah. You know, so if that makes you feel better and lets you ignore these things that are actually biblical statements about, you know, again, oppression and justice and all that, I mean, it's unfortunate people do it. Does, is it going to lead to any kind of, you know, good cultural dialogue or is it really, I mean, for, for Christians, again, is this appropriate for Christian? No, it's not. It goes back to demonizing other people. It goes back to sort of guilt by association, which is a form of slander. So, yeah, yeah I mean, right. is, that, is that a term that we should be using? No, I don't think so. Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah. yeah. Now, are, I mean, you asked this question, like, are there, well, let's put it this way. Are there people in these kind of, you know, racial justice protests who are Marxists? So of course there are, you know, yeah. there, there are people who, you know, as far as I can tell, you know, not claiming to be Christians, but, but they sort of avow Marxism. Again, if you're right, again, if you're an actual Marxist, Marxist, you're also an atheist. So the two kind of don't mix. <laughs> say, say that again. If you're an actual Marxist, you're also an atheist. That was one of the tenets of, of right. Marxism is that there is no God. You know, okay. I, yeah. I live in the former Soviet Union. You have to remember that. Okay. So, you know, but are there, you know, I mean, maybe there's a, you know, a handful of pastors out there somewhere who might kind of call, call themselves both Marxist and Christians. I, I haven't really run into any, certainly not, not in theologically conservative circles. So when you, so when you have somebody who has, you know, again, solid theology, you know, in the biblical sense, not in the political sense, the biblical sense, conservative, right? They, they hold to, you know, the Apostles Creed, you know, historic Protestant statements of faith, you know, all kind of kind of the whole, you know, evangelical litany of, you know, doctrinal points that we should hold to. And then they say, and we should be interested in justice for racial, you know, racial minorities for those who are oppressed. You know, do you get to throw him under the bus with Marxists? No, that's dishonest. I mean, again, yeah. people do it, but it's unfortunate. Yeah, dude, such a good point. And I feel like it's a label that gets thrown around unfairly. And, you know, I'm just trying to think this through. I've heard one joke that basically, you know, the strategy for debate is anytime anyone says anything you don't like, just call them a Marxist and you automatically win the debate. <laughs> the goat, the goat sad, sad but true, yeah. Yeah, and there's, there's probably you know, insults that happen on the other side as well. But, you know, it's been interesting because I've seen, I've seen some progressive liberal friends of mine who will post things saying, you know, oh, Jesus was a socialist. And I'm just like, okay, well, actually, Jesus wasn't a capitalist and he definitely wouldn't have been a member of the NRA, but he isn't a socialist either. He doesn't fit, like he doesn't fit these political categories because, you know, like when you start with capitalism, capitalism has its own theology. When you start with socialism, socialism has its own theology. And what I mean by that is it has its own belief system. There are manifestos and beliefs that are written to support these ideas. And for Christians, we don't start 
with socialism and figure out how to get scripture to support it. We don't start with capitalism and figure out how do we get scripture to support capitalism. We start with scripture and we start with what does Jesus say? How does Jesus teach us to think about the world? And so I just don't think we should be calling ourselves these things. I don't think we should call ourselves a socialist or a capitalist or even a conservative or a liberal. I think we should call ourselves Christ followers and then work out the rest of what we believe from the starting point of Jesus instead of reverse engineering it. So, you know, I think it's just one of those things that can be so tricky. And I think we just need to stop dismissing people and actually listen to what they have to say. Because I love what you're saying about how, we have this idea that just because somebody who's a non-Christian or an atheist or somebody who has an opposing view of us is saying something that it can't be true at all. Like, for instance, you know, let's take the Black Lives Matter political movement and organization. We now know that the people who have started that movement are identified as Marxist. There, there's evidence of them saying like, hey, we we are trained Marxists. So, yes, sure. Fine. Get that out of the way. Like they are Marxists. However, that doesn't mean that just because a Marxist is pointing out some injustice towards black people, that doesn't mean that it can't be true. That doesn't mean that a Christian should just assume that every statistic or everything that comes out of their mouth is a lie. There could be some truth in there. And as a Christian, you can acknowledge that truth. That doesn't mean that therefore you agree with everything the Marxist stands for. If a Marxist says two plus two equals four, if you agree, that doesn't mean that you have now become a Marxist. A broken clock is right twice a day, they say. Exactly. You know, so yeah, I mean, you're totally right. And it's it's back to that whole guilt by association thing, you know, but, but in the end, if something is true, you know, because it's God's truth, then it's true no matter who says it, even if other things that person says are not true. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's not just Marxism, although sometimes people get accused of being just a Marxist because, you know, they talk about issues of systemic racism. It's specifically, quote unquote, cultural Marxism, which has to do, as you mentioned, more with kind of these social groupings. You know, the reality is before there ever was a Karl Marx, you know, was the group that were Africans and then later African-Americans oppressed by the group that were white in America. Mm. Yes, it's mm. called slavery. Right. Right. I mean, you can't, you can't, you can't ignore that. It has nothing to do with Marx or these other kind of later ideologies that came <laughs> along. I mean, oppression predates Marx. Yes, it does. <laughs> but by quite a few thousand years, you know, I mean, there's oppression in the world because there's sin in the world. And this is kind of, you know, going back to it again, not all oppression is ethnically based, but historically, it's not rare that it has been eth ethnically based. Mm. And, you know, specifically in the more recent history and, and speaking to the United States, you know, it was ethnically uh, and to some degree is ethnically based, you know, still dealing with the after effects of this, this long history of systemic racism, primarily against, you know, black people, but also other minorities in America can can certainly Right. suffer from that as well, not least of, of which are, you know, you know, the indigenous peoples, native, you know, Native Americans, you know, who who certainly were oppressed and, and destroyed in many ways. So, again, and you mentioned this earlier, but that's just to say that when we're talking about racial justice, while the, the main focus is on kind of the African-American community right now, we should not ignore the issues for other minorities either. Yeah, that's a good point. There's so many people around the world that face oppression in many different ways. And 
And I think one of the greatest hopes that the gospel gives us is what happens to the oppressor and the oppressed when they both come to the cross of Jesus. Like, it's fascinating to see stories in the Bible of Jewish people, you know, oppressed by first the Egyptians and then other cult, the Babylonians and then the Romans. And then you get to the New Testament, and you've got these Roman centurions and they, they come to Christ and then you see them at the same table together with the Jewish people they were oppressing and they're humble and they're seeking mercy and forgiveness. And man, that's the hope. That's the hope that Christianity gives us is this framework where the world says, you know, the secular system would look at a group of people and say, oh, these people are oppressors and they're bad and evil. They're all evil. And the solution is to tear down the system and destroy them all and then raise up the oppressors and put them in power. But we know, as history shows us, oftentimes what happens in these systems is when one oppressive regime is toppled, then another one rises to take its place. And oftentimes the oppressed become the oppressor. It's this sin cycle of history. And so what's different is with Christianity, you have such a different paradigm. Like, for instance, take, take the book of Philemon, right? Paul's saying to this guy Philemon who has a slave who ran away, a guy named Onesimus. He's saying, listen, Philemon, I know your slave ran away, but I am calling you to not hunt him down and kill him because he ran away from you. I'm calling you to reconcile with him, to not enact justice against him, but I'm calling for you guys to be Christian brothers and to love one another. And, and I just think, you know, that is the model that the Bible and that Jesus gives us. That's so different. And that, that doesn't mean that we just go, okay, you know, we have an oppressed people, but they just need to come to Jesus. And then the oppressors just need to come to Jesus. And then everything you know, can just keep going the way it is. But as long as the oppressors and the oppressed both are giving their hearts to Jesus, then everything would be fine. No, the idea would be that when the oppressors and the oppressed come to Jesus, the oppressors on one hand will stop oppressing people. They'll let go of their oppression and then they'll instead love and be self-sacrificial and kind and just and, and ask for forgiveness and find out what they can do to bring restitution and restoration and then for the oppressed, they are then called to let go of their anger and their bitterness and not to seek revenge and to not, you know, have this eye for an eye mentality, but to love even the ones that had hurt them. And so, you know, to me, that that's the idea. That's the idea of racial reconciliation. And ultimately, yeah, that's what we're fighting for. You know, I think anyone listening to this, I hope they don't think that we're fighting for some secular progressive idea of systemic racism or this idea of every white person is a racist or whatever. Ultimately, as Christians and as pastors, we're approaching this theologically and our hope is to see reconciliation between people and it's to see people find the gospel and find Jesus and find it in their hearts to surrender their hatred and even, yes, possibly forgive one another. So Ben, to close, can you touch on that idea of what is the balance between us as Christians saying that the gospel is the solution to the problems of the world? But then also asking the question, do we just stop at the gospel? Is the gospel the only answer or is there more to it? Yeah, I mean, you know, like I mentioned, the gospel is the only thing that can transform us at a heart level. 
That's for sure. So, I mean, we can't we can't say like, oh, we'll just act and enact all of these great, you know, kind of social and legal policies and we'll solve racism. Well, that's not exactly how it works. You know, because racism in the end is about identity, it's about, you know, kind of our attempts to self-justify. We need a new identity uh, and we need to receive the gift of justification. And that's in Christ alone. At the same time, because we have received these things and because we now value through Christ what God values and what God values among many things is justice, is all people, mm. is, you know, particularly justice for the oppressed. I mean, you know, the the Bible is full of God's kind of, you know, he says, I'm on the side of the orphans and the widows and, and the, the the word is sojourners, right? But it's really the immigrants, you know, and so we value as God's people the things that God values, and therefore we try to have our lives reflect it. And, you know, one can make arguments that in a society where people basically had no say, I mean, they're, you know, in an authoritarian regime, you know, perhaps their responsibility to see these things fleshed out was really more, not not exclusively, but but perhaps more within, you know, the life of the church itself. And certainly we should continue that. That's That should not stop. But as, you know, most of us in, in the 21st century live in democracies where, you know, the citizens have a measure of authority and thus responsibility, right? To quote Spider-Man, with great power comes great responsibility. <laughs> I, had to, I had to get like a, a you know, <laughs> a movie quote in there somewhere. I mean, you know, so so as those living in these societies where we have some sort of, you know, say or influence, we should seek to reflect them again as the church reflecting it, but then also, you know, in in policies and and in and really the political sphere as much as, you know, each person feels called to take part in that you know, seek to to do so in a way that reflects the values of Christ. Mm. Man, that's good. So, so good, Ben. Thank you for your time and your perspective. We've got we've to have you back on again to talk more about this. This is a hot topic for sure. It so, is a hot topic. Yeah, would love to. I appreciate your perspective, though, especially, you know, I just love talking to missionaries about this stuff because their perspective always feels like a breath of fresh air to me. You know, they're not really in that American political firefight. It's almost like they're kind of sitting on a hill observing all sides of the battle. And so I appreciate that because I feel like it gives a more objective view than when you're kind of down on the ground level fighting, you know, and you feel like you have to fight for one side or the other. So it's, right. Yeah. They say you should never ask a fish what water is. Yeah. <laughs> right. It's like you're surrounded by it. You're just it's like, what's water? I'm just here. You know. Right. But when you get a little bit outside, you know, it is it is it is. Again, it, it kind of adds just a, a different perspective. Mm, that's good. Thanks for being here, Ben. Really, yeah, really pleasure. appreciate it. Thanks, cool. Aaron. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Good Lion Podcast. If you like our show, please take a minute and give us a review on iTunes. It seriously helps out so much. The more reviews we get, the more people find the show. And so if you want people to be able to find the show, please go to iTunes and give us a quick review or a rating. We also love to answer listener questions on the show. So if you have any questions that you'd like for us to talk about, please send it to our email. It's goodlionnetwork at gmail.com and we'll make sure 
that we get around to it. The Good Lion Podcast is a production of the Calvary Global Network, and it's produced by myself, Brian Higgins, and my co-host, Aaron Silvato. This show is part of the Good Lion Podcast Network, a network of Christian podcasts that Aaron and I started with some friends of ours that is focused on getting Jesus-centered content out to speak to all kinds of areas of life. You can check out our website to learn the different kinds of content we're making. It's goodlion.io. If you head over there, you'll find all kinds of Christ-centered, encouraging podcasts. Our goal with this ministry is to reach people all over the world with Christ-centered content that helps them walk closer with Jesus. If you like what we do and want to support us, please go to goodlion.io support. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time.